Good morning, Anthem. We uh, and continuing in John. Some of you might be like, "Wait a minute, aren't we starting at the beginning of chapter four? Did we skip over the scene with the the Samaritan woman at the well?" And uh, no, we are going to be doing John four one through forty five. Uh, but I figured on of all Sundays when it's spring forward, it was not a good idea to have a 45-verse-long scripture reading uh, right before the sermon. So, uh, but no, actually, I, I, I did on purpose because I, I wanted to highlight something uh, by having uh, Michaelin just read in the middle of this scene, there uh, Jesus says these famous words, these well-known words. Many of you, if you've read the Bible or been around church, you've, you've heard these words about the, the harvest being plentiful. And, and, and here's the thing, you may also know this well-known passage, which is Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well. What you might not realize is that they go together and that they're in the same context. And, and as I was reading it, I actually was, was reading and studying and I was going, wait, how did I never catch that these actually go together? And why do they go together? Jesus is inter- interacting with this woman and talking about thirsting at a well, and then all of a sudden we're here where it's like we're talking about the fields being ripe for the harvest with his disciples. How do these, how does one flow into the other? They almost seem disconnected, but they actually are very connected. And John is making a point by actually bringing these two uh, scenes together, what, what um, these, this historical event and this kind of uh, progression of events. And, and what John is saying here is he's going to unpack this reality, which is that we all as human beings have a thirst in our soul. That until it is satisfied in God alone, uh, we'll, we'll never be satisfied. And, and then at the same time, what he says is that we actually, though, when we go out into the world, when we look around us, we interact with other human beings who are very different from us, what we will often do is we will tend to see things just on the surface level, and we won't see the thirst that's actually in their soul. And so what Jesus is going to tie together today is both the thirst that is in our soul, but also to open up our eyes, to lift up our eyes, as he's going to say, to see the thirst that is actually all around us. Because one of the realities is if we don't see the thirst all around us, the deep thirst in people's souls, then what will happen is we'll just see things on a surface level, and we'll usually only see people coming into our lives as a threat. Because usually that thirst is going to manifest in ways that our lifestyles, political affiliations, movements, and whatnot that are very different from us. And so instead of seeing the thirst, we see the threat. But what Jesus wants us to see is that when we actually bring our souls to him and find that thirst satisfying, we are satisfied, we'll begin to see that thirst in others. And it will deepen that experience of having that satisfaction in Jesus. To set us up, there's known to capture this kind of dynamic, you could say. That I found, especially with a lot of non-believing friends that I have and folks that are, and when I say non-believing, I I tend to think in terms of kind of like there's atheist, there is no God, agnostic, I I don't know who God is, but I think there probably is a God, and then uh, somebody who would just be, um, then maybe like I'm not like a seeker, like I'm not sure, like maybe Jesus is the way, not sure if I'm going to follow him. And anyone who's in that spectrum, there's a quote that I read once from a British writer who he wrote an autobiography, and it was really, at the end of the day, a journey of faith. And this book captured his journey really from hardcore atheism to more being an agnostic. There isn't a God to, I think there is a God. And, And this is what he opens his autobiography with. He says this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. 
What that captures there is the thirst that every human being, if they're honest, has. That we all, <laughs> if, if we don't have Christ, we will miss him. We will have a thirst. We will have a hunger. That's unsatisfied. And so what Jesus today is going to do is he's going to point us to how we can find that thirst satisfied in him. And then how we can turn and we can lead others to that living water as well. So first we're going to look at the thirst, the harvest, and then third, how to lead someone to living water. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for, Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, this, this text is, there are so many layers. Lord, your word just cuts through us. It cuts to the soul of our being. It re- is revealing. It lays us bare. And so, Lord, I don't ask this morning just that I would be able to speak clearly or that I would be able to uh, speak in a way that moves. Lord, I ask that you, Spirit, would come and you would apply your word to our hearts in the way it needs to be applied. Simply put, Lord, would you show up, Spirit? Would you move? Would you do the work that needs to be done in our soul? Help me to plant. Help me to water. But, Lord, would you provide the growth? Would you provide the change? Lord, would you show us and bring conviction? Would you comfort the afflicted? And would you afflict the comfortable? And, Lord, would you give us Christ? Lord, we, came, we come here this morning thirsty. And so give us living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, I should say as this opens up, it, it's kind of like the first few verses. I think we tend as modern readers to read it as, you know, those scenes in Indiana Jones where like all of a sudden there's like a map and he's like in a plane and it's like, right? to like the next place. It's almost like we think that's what's going on here. Like, it's just kind of like, all right, where is he at now? Right? So it's like, so we just kind of jump over all these details. But John is actually cueing us into a few things about the context that we need to know in this interaction that's about ready to take place. The first is that here, it says that John the Baptist, who we've been following the last few weeks, John the Baptist, who's not John who wrote the gospel, has gone before Jesus and he's, he's proclaiming the gospel and he's calling people to Jesus. He's saying he's coming, the Messiah is coming. And, and what's happened is people are hearing this message and they're following John and they're, they're believing him and so they're being baptized as an act that signifies their belief and they're repenting through their baptism, which means they're turning from their beliefs to what John is saying is true. And so they're being baptized and they're following him. And what's happening now is a movement has taken over where Jesus, who began with John, it's not only just John, but those he led uh, to himself and then who they lead and they lead. it's a movement is taking off and so it's like like a Jesus is like a rock into the ancient uh, context the first century context and it's just like the ripples are going outward and what's happening is is that for the religious leaders they don't like it so John as we've seen has become public enemy number one what what John is John the gospel writer is saying here is that now Jesus has become public enemy number one that he surpassed John. And so now all eyes are on Jesus. What's happening is really the message has been for the religious leaders. If anything, they've been trying to protect what they have. They've seen this message of God's grace, this message of Jesus and how God has done something new. See, they've seen the religious landscape like a zero-sum game. There's so many people who are religious. There's so many people who are impure and they're outside. We could say modern terms outside the church. And because those people are there, there's only so many. And so what we want to do is we want to keep them on the bus and we want to get them in our seats on the bus. 
And what happened with Jesus and now with John the Baptist is he just kind of pulled up, opened up the doors of the bus and was like, whoever wants to get on the bus, you're invited in. You just got to repent of your sins and find life here. Come on, come on the bus. And what's happening is people are doing it and they're looking at it and they're going, that's going to completely upend everything we have. What they are seeing is they are seeing all around them, they see it as famines. And what's happening here in Jesus is Jesus has started to feast. And it's starting to go forward. Now, what I love then is Jesus, knowing that this is happening, Jesus is like, he kind of ups the ante. Like, Jesus knows he's, he's around the, the Jewish people. And so he's like, you know what, actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to double down. And I'm going to go to Galilee to all the Gentiles. And I'm going to go to those people. See, we miss as in, or modern readers that when it refers to him then going to, he again departed for Galilee, then verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. For first century readers, they would have immediately been like, ooh, those guys, right? Like those people, those people. It's kind of a, a, a big, complex history of why they're at this place. But there's a, I can summarize it, there's a quote from a guy, D.A. Carson, who wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John, and he sums it up well. So just let me lay this out, follow the quote. I know there's a lot of details here. Don't have to memorize all of them. But after the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722-21 BC, they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some of their ancient religion. So what it's saying there is that Samaria is right next to Judea. And what happens is uh, they had at some point been captured by Assyria. And when that happened, they took out of Samaria all of the people of high social standing, all the people with skills, all the people who were um, kind of like the, the upper level, uh, upper crust of society. They took them, the well-educated, and they, ex they deported them to Assyria. They took them back to Babylon. And so they took them all the way across the known world, and then they put them into their schools, and they put them into their families, and they, and they tried to teach them there. But then what happened was, in Samaria, a bunch of Assyrians moved in, and they began getting married to them and having kids with them, and they started um, teaching them things from the, uh, the Assyrian like, language. This is why Ezra like, eventually like, goes haywire on them, because he's like, you don't know the language, right? Because what's happening, and they intermarry, and they start having kids. And so... This is kind of what's happened during this exile. And so after the exile, Jews returning to their homeland, so this is about 80 years later, the remains of the southern kingdom viewed the Samaritans, not only the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. They also mixed in their religion. So they brought over their Assyrian gods and they kind of syncretized them with, with old, like, Yah, worship of Yahweh. And they kind of, this is where you get all this language like Asheropoles and all this kind of stuff in the Old Testament. About 400 BC then, the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is where this scene with the woman is going to take place. Right next to it. And so they erect a temple because they're like, wait, if we're, we're worshiping God, this, this is what we know. And then the, the um, Israelites are right across the border and they're like, you can't worship God this way. They have this whole divorce. And they said, we're just going to start our own church essentially and worship God in our way, the only way we know how at this point. And then toward the end of the second century BC, the Hasmonean ruler of what happened was there was a, this ruler who's associated with Rome and he comes in and he's going, man, what would make you happy? And they're like, tear down their funky church over there. 
So he goes over there and he raises the thing, okay? So you can imagine if this is the history between you and the people right across the street on the other side of the tracks. Combination, understatement of the year by Carson, has fueled religious and theological animosities. Those people across the tracks, those people of this different ideology, those people, the Samaritans, wrong politics, theology, racially impure, when a Jew looked at a Samaritan, that's all they could see. That's all they saw. But Jesus goes specifically to a well. And what Jesus does is, it, it, John, when he came to Samaria, in verse 5, that he came to a town called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is Old Testament, Genesis, goes way, way, way back before that division. Jacob's well was there. They had dug a, they provide, God provided a well for Jacob. It's in the middle of kind of this desert region, right outside of the village. It's isolated. There's no other water. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the six hours. So what happens here is John's setting up where Jesus, it's about noon. Jesus is thirsty because of his travels. And Jesus comes to the well and he gets something. He wants to get a drink from this well. But John's setting up several things here. He's saying that, listen, God, you actually, what's going on underneath this and what he's setting up is that there is a thirst that actually predates all of your divisions. In other words, what's on the surface that you see when you see a Samaritan, when the Samaritans see you, is you see the surface-level divisions. You see the sociological categories. You see the political stances. You see the lifestyle choices. You see those things and those things alone. And if that's all you ever got, then all you're ever going to do is war. But what Jesus is saying is he's coming here to make a point to say, listen, I'm coming to a reality. God has already been at work way before any of this because there's something deeper that all of you share as people made in my image, every single human being across all racial, cultural, social, religious lines, which is y'all have a deep thirst. And that soul thirst that you have until it's satisfied in me, you will continue to be thirsty and look for ways to solve it. Jesus goes to this well, and he's tired. And one of the beautiful things I just have to point out here is that this is one of the places where we see that Jesus, he is able to sympathize with us and speak to these things because he was someone who was, he was fully human. He also thirsted. He also felt that weakness. He also knew that you have to go somewhere for water. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying there's one, there's a surface level physical water that you need for your body. Like all of us probably woke up this morning because it's winter. Our throat was dry. And we went, I need water. And he's saying your soul has an even deeper thirst just like that that needs to be satisfied. So Jesus is going to go deeper. That's what's setting up here. So then verse 7, it sets up this encounter. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. What's interesting is this woman, John highlights, she's a woman from Samaria. And she's traveled at some point out into the middle of nowhere to this well by herself. And that's the first kind of silent detail here in this text. A woman in the first century would never, ever go outside of the village and go out into this area. Like if you've ever read the Good Samaritan parable, it's because of these roads and whatnot, she would be, she could be violated in some way. Thankfully, I thought of a good word. There's kids in the room. So she can be violated, mugged, whatnot, in, a, in, in some way. She was vulnerable. 
to those around her. So women always went in groups. And they would go out there and they'd bring the, the jugs and they would fill them with water and they'd take them back to the village. And so she's gone out there at some point, but she's by herself and she's filled it with water. And what Jesus knows because she's there alone is that she knows that there's one strike against her, which is she's a Samaritan woman. That's one level of shame. And the second level of shame that she carries is something distinctively as a woman that she carries before her own people. She's isolated, she's alone, because there's some kind of shame that she carries. And so Jesus says to her, give me a drink of water. Now, when Jesus says to her, give me a drink of water, he's probably thinking, he's probably looking at the jug of water that she's drawn from the well, and he's saying, give me a drink of water from that jar that you have there. And here's the thing, another thing that we miss culturally. A man of Jesus' reputation, of his social standing, a rabbi, a great, becoming a great teacher, someone who maybe has political aspirations, not, no one's really at this point can tell. It seems like there are these kingdom things he talks about. But a man of Jesus', if he had the aspirations he does, the social standing he does, he would never, ever talk to this woman in the first century. This is why it highlights in verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the, into the city to buy food. In other words, if his disciples were here, they'd be like, whoa, 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 Jesus, what are you doing? They're not there. But what Jesus is doing is he's not there just to draw water. He's there to draw out the woman's soul and a reality that's there. The woman responds, if you can imagine, there's no way to like, you know, kind of put a pause into the text. But he says this, hey, he turns to her. It's the, it seems to be only two of them at this well, middle of nowhere. And they've just been maybe shuffling their feet and she's there and he's sitting down. And he's, give me a drink of water. And this woman's like probably getting ready to walk away. And she, you, are you talking to me? Like you're. You're going to talk to me, do you, like, I'm, I'm clearly, I, I don't know culturally how they could tell, like, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, probably by their attire or whatnot, but they can tell me, like, you're, I'm a Samaritan woman, you're not supposed to be talking to me, let alone I'm here by myself. Like, do you realize how shameful this is? Because it says in verse 9, she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Like, you can't drink water from me, I'm impure, you can't drink water from me. Like, I'm this shameful person. Like, if you, if you even talk to me, you become filthy by even engaging with me or associating with me. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That parenthetical aside is saying what the real meaning of her statement is. You're not supposed to have any dealings with me, but she doesn't want to rebuke him. And so then... And I think in some ways this reveals the deep stigma that the woman has. You can imagine she's kind of going like, no one, like don't, no one talks to me. No, no one, like, let alone me. But Jesus, if you knew the gift of God and who, he would have water. Now, what is Jesus saying? It's helpful to know that this phrase, gift of God, see, the, the Samaritans, there's so much background in this text. The Samaritans, because it's a unique phrase, right? Why does Jesus use this unique phrase? The Samaritans had this unique view of the Old Testament 
where they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, what's called the Pentateuch, to be uh, uh, canon, to be scripture. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. But you know what they called it? The God. The Torah, the gift of God. And so what Jesus is doing is he's using the only language that she knows, this theological language that she's been given, these categories she's been given, and he's saying, if you want that gift, if you want what the Old Testament is promising, the whole thing is pointing to this reality, and that reality is me. That's what he's doing. He says, give to God. He's co-opting the language that she knows, and he's using it to point to him. So first, he's saying, you have to be satisfied in me alone, but then how? How? Well, he uses this phrase, I will give you living water. Now, we know, probably if you've been around the Bible, you're like, living water, that's Jesus' phrase for himself, and he satisfies our souls. Now, imagine trying to be her, though, right? She, she just encountered him, and he goes, I'll give you living water. One of the things is on, a, on kind of a, a literal level, this Greek word for living water, this phrase, means literally like running spring water. So you could even understand it. Jesus says, but I will give you running spring water. Or then we understand that Jesus is getting at, like, you can either have well water, which is more stagnant, or, and that's a picture of one thing that you're drawing from in life, or you can have living water from me that keeps coming and keeps coursing through you and out of you that will never end. But what happens is the woman only understands it in the literal way. This is why she responds the way she does in verse 11 and 12. She said, sir, verse 11 again, sir. Now I'll come back to what sir one of the things throughout John, he says at the end of his gospel, his kind of thesis statement in John 20, 30, and 31, he says, I've written these things in this gospel. I've highlighted very specific things. I haven't highlighted everything. I've highlighted specific signs that Jesus did and things he said, because why? And he says it like this. John says, so that you might have life in his name, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And what happens throughout John's gospels is they often come to him, Rabbi, teacher, sir, right? As we're going to see, prophet. They come to him with these things, and he says, it's not that I'm not those things, but I'm more. In other words, it's just like right now you're like some man that I should be addressing. So she's not quite like, so far at this point, she's not really sure what to think about Jesus. And she says, sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What's she, what she saying there? Well, what she's saying is, if you're going to give me water, like this fresh flowing water from a spring, then where, where, where's the spring? You don't even have a shovel, right? And she's going, you're, you're promising me that you're, here's another man who's coming along, and he's saying, I'm going to give you this or that or the other thing. And she's saying, if you've got this, then how in the world would you actually provide it? So she's taking it on a literal level. And she's going, God provided this well for Jacob. Are you greater than him? And have you provided greater water than this? So at this point, they're just kind of talking past each other. But then Jesus says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So now he's getting to the principle. One of the things we've seen Jesus do throughout John's gospel is almost what I've called live action parables. Where Jesus will go to something like a well, and he uses like the imagery of literally drinking from a well to address what's going on in our hearts, in our souls. So now he gives the principle of what he's been getting at the whole time. Everyone who drinks of this water, this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up 
to eternal life. Why does Jesus say that? Because what he's saying to her is there is a thirst that you have that can't be quenched. Your soul is a well so deep. Like, and we wake up again every day where we're thirsty and we can satisfy that physical thirst. But at the same time, there's actually a deeper thirst that's coursing through you that you need to have satisfied. And until it is satisfied, you will go again after again after again after things that will fail you. And so he's using this physical well to say, actually, this thing, this actually doesn't even go deep enough. I am the greater. I go deep enough. I give you that living water. And what happens is, if we keep trying to thirst and drink from that well, what will happen is eventually just be thirsty. And shame upon shame will come, as we're going to see in a second. Well, the woman, the woman responds, and she says, all right, verse 15, sir, well, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's like, all right, you got my attention. Let me know where I can find this water. Where is it? What Jesus does then next absolutely cuts to the spiritual level, to the soul level. In verse 18, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you. I've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Read, see what's happening in this scene. All right, show me where the water is. Jesus says, all right, I'm going to drill down. Go and get your husband. And when he says this, you can imagine for this woman how all of the shame that she carries, he's hitting right on why she's journeying to this well by herself. The social stigma that she carries, the shame that she carries. And when he says this, you can imagine like her eyes like starting to well up with tears where it's like, oh, here we go again. It's this again. Like how, how does he know this? But here's the, it's the whole reason why I'm out here by myself vulnerable, Jesus. So is Jesus, I mean, you can't stop. Is he being cruel? He would be if it wouldn't be that when he drills down to the problem that he immediately has an offer of life. But he needs her to see this before he can offer her life. He's saying, he's putting his finger right on the source of her soul's thirst and her soul's problem. And he's saying, I need you to see it to see how well it's not going so you'll see your need for me. See, over and over again in the Old Testament, we had this kind of imagery. In Jeremiah, there's a famous passage where it says, in me, the fountain of living waters. I've turned away from finding that water in me, that living water, and have hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The picture there is, okay, I'm not going to go here to this fountain in this river flowing with water, but I'm going to actually go over here because I don't trust that one. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to dig my own hole in the ground, and I'm going to put in kind of like a clay structure here, and I'm going to try to get water there, but the problem is it's going to be cracked, and it's going to keep getting like dirt and water with dirt, and so you're trying to like almost pick up muck and get the water. 
And what Jesus is saying is he's, he's alluding to that language from the Old Testament to say, listen, if you live your life, if we live our lives trying to use the things of this world and get the satisfaction that can only come in him, then we are going to live our lives constantly trying to find different things that will promise us to be a cistern that will promise us to provide that water, that will promise us that they'll give us life, that will promise us to give us, that they will give us satisfaction. And what will happen is again and again and again when we give ourselves to them, we'll find that they're broken and that they're muddy and that all they're giving us is this mess. And so shame piles upon shame, piles upon shame as we turn from relationship to relationship to relationship. For her, it was men and probably the security that they provided. For us, it may be the affection that someone provides us. It may be the security our career provides us. It may Maybe the pomp that our money gives us. It could be many different things. It could be our, the pride that our knowledge gives us. And what happens is again and again and again, we give ourselves to these things. And as we do, we find again and again that they fail us and that they're broken. And we think that more sex, more work, more money, more being right will solve it and satisfy it. But we find that shame just heaps upon shame because that cycle gets worse and worse and worse. And Jesus is putting his finger right on it and how this has been happening in her life. And Jesus this morning wants to put his finger right on our souls. For her, it was the husbands. But what, what is it for you? What is it for me? What is, what is the thing that it, it's like, man, if this thing just worked, then and it, I just could do it a little bit better. If I could just get to the next rung, if I could just, just a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. Begin letting that roll around in your mind. The woman immediately, and maybe right now you want to deflect and do the same thing she does because she's like, I don't want to go there. So immediately she kind of tries to change the subject, and she says in 19, the woman said to him, sir, I, I, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you're able to just tell me everything I did wrong. I perceive that you're another one of these people who can point at me and go, look at what she did. And I don't know if someone put you up to this. I don't know if you're actually a prophet who can actually see these things, but great, you're a prophet. Great, my life is a mess. Great, I'm impure. Great, I have shame. Great, I'm out here by myself because, yes, again and again and again, I found life just not working out. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Now you're going to start to feel her use the theological division. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Remember, they, used to, they started a temple on their own mountain. They worship on their mountain. She's going to start like now, like, wait, let's, like a smoke screen. Like, I get you want to talk about this, but I'm going to throw up smoke screens, these theological issues, to try to get you to just like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. The woman said to him, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Right? So she, she's going like, this is something like, let, let's talk about this. Like, is this even like, are you working from the same system I'm working from? Like, she's immediately trying to keep this at the surface level when Jesus is trying to go deep into her soul. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Actually, he uses the words and everything that she's saying to address her inner, inner thirst. In fact, if anything, he's saying, I'm, I'm more than a prophet. I am, but I'm more. I'm not just here to tell you about what you've done wrong, but I'm here to reveal to you how you can find the satisfaction that you're looking for. Verse 21 through 25. 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's like, listen, it doesn't have to do with the mountain. It doesn't even have to do with that division. You worship what you do not know. You worship. You're giving yourself over and over again, your soul to something. You don't even know what it is. You're trying to find life. And it's driving you. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship of the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What he's saying is you've been so far and you've been looking for him and you've been seeking him and you've been taking all the little cisterns you could hone out and you're just lapping at it, hoping that it will satisfy you and you find yourself again and again in this situation. And what I'm telling you, the whole time you haven't been realizing that thirst is meant for God and he has been seeking you. I am here now now to tell you, you couldn't find me because you hadn't heard about me. And now I'm here. This is where that thirst can actually be quenched. He's saying, listen, he's going to go on. He says, God, he talks about spirit and truth. God is in 24 spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus is not downplaying, saying, oh, it's fine. Whatever you've done, it's, it, you know, sin's cool. Like broken. No, he hates it. The, the point of this is Jesus saying, you need to know the truth of who I am. And if you know, though, the truth of who I am, that I am living water, and you know the truth of your actual problem, not the surface stuff, the source. And you say, there's something deep in me that longs, and I've been giving myself to the wrong things. And you go, listen, that desire is meant for God. And now you turn from, repent from, looking for that in the things of this world and find it in me. If you do and you turn, you will find life and your spirit will come alive. God's not looking for people just to kind of like do the right things and then turn, repent, and turn and just act like the religious people. He's saying repent and turn of the source and find life, a new source in me. Not just repent of your old surface-level lifestyle and then find a different surface-level lifestyle, but it just looks more churchy. That's not the gospel. Jesus is saying, I want life for you. You're worshiping a lie and something made promises that it can't keep and it won't satisfy you. And it's killing your soul and I will make known to you what is true and give you life. And the woman then in 25 begins to grasp. She kind of comes with like a statement, but it's really a question. 25, the woman said, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us, all things, kind of like you've been telling me, you read all my mail, right? And now you're telling me all these other things, and you're telling me about essentially the water, and it's starting, to, the dominoes are starting to fall, like, kind of like the coin is in, imagine shaking it, the coin's starting to drop. <laughs> and she's starting to see Jesus for who he is, and so Jesus responds and says, I who speak to you am he, you are finding life in my name, I am Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. I'm not just some sir. I'm not just some prophet. I'm not just some rabbi. I am the source. I won't just give you new teaching. I won't just give you new, you know, buckle down and behave better. I'm going to give you a new source of life because I'm the Messiah. But what's interesting here is that Jesus actually then using the interaction with the disciples that's coming next reveals that often the reason why we aren't really aware of where we're not finding satisfaction in Jesus and we don't actually thirst for him 
is because of the fact that we keep things at a surface level and where he's going to go into like essentially evangelism. So follow with me. Second, the harvest. The disciples see the woman as a threat of some sort. So verse 27, just then the disciples came back. <laughs> it's like they have this moment. She's like, I think you're the Messiah. He's like, I am he. And you're like, they're going to hug, right? She's going to come to Jesus, going to baptize her. All kinds of good stuff's going to happen. Then the disciples like break in like Uncle Kool-Aid, right? Remember those old commercials where you're just like, oh, yeah. And they come in and Jesus is like, no, not oh, yeah, guys. Like she's, about, she's coming to Christ. And they're just like, oh, yeah, hey, who's this, right? And they just come in and completely blow up the entire moment. Okay, and so immediately the woman, it says that she leaves. She's like, okay, I'm out of here. I've seen this before because right away they come in and they say they're marveling. You're talking to a woman, but no one said, even though they were thinking it. John reveals what they're thinking, but they, won't, they know better and say it. What do you seek? And they turn to the woman. What, what do you seek? comes with accusation. We know your kind. We know people like you. What do you want? And then on the other end, there's kind of a question for, there's a question then for Jesus. Why are you talking with her? Jesus, what, 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 don't you know if we're associated with her? Because you're so controlled by your social, socially constructed identity, which is powerful in our day. I wish I had time to go into that. And so that's the way we actually find life. That's what actually constructs our lives and gives the contours to it. And Jesus says the disciples are just like modern people. And he says, you're not actually experiencing living water from me. So hold on to that. But first, really quickly, what happens then is a woman in 28 left her water jar. She leaves her water. She's like, this old water, I don't need it. I got living water. And so she, I think that's actually narratively how they're indicating to us. Like, she's, she's coming to Christ. She has faith now. It's like, I don't need the sister, and I don't need any of this. I've, I've got Jesus. And so she's, she's like, I know the disciples, they got some growing up to do. But I met Jesus, and I actually know him, and I know who he is. And so she runs to the village, and then she went to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Remember the Messiah? He will tell us all things. Well, he told me all I ever did. And not only did he tell me all I ever did, but he pointed me to all, like, all the problems, all the solutions. Can this be the Christ? And then get this detail in 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. So she tells them, and then they start coming out of the town. Because, like, sitting there, and she's just, like, look back. She's got, like, well, you guys should just have a bag of chocolate bears. And she's just, like, where'd you get those, right? Like, they're wondering, who gets Jesus' food? That's what they think he's alluding to. But then Jesus said to them, my food is not to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus begins to do the same thing to them that he did with her, which is now instead of thirst, though, he's using hunger. And he's saying there is something, a spiritual level here. He's saying physical food, yes. We know Jesus ate. Jesus isn't saying here he never ate. Jesus ate. But at the same time, Jesus is saying there's physical hunger that we all have. But it's actually a deeper spiritual hunger that is hard to address. And he says, that's where I'm going to go. And he's going to address and hit them right between the eyes with this next statement on exactly where their souls are actually, <laughs> they're not alive. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, stop there. 
why does Jesus all of a sudden go to this like, you know, thing on evangelism or like this harvest thing? I remember, like, what's the transition here? Well, then I realized, go back to verse 30, what happens? All the people are coming. And what Jesus does is he says, do you look out when you see everyone around you and they're feeling their way towards me? That's what every human being is doing with their deep thirst and their spiritual hunger. And they're trying to find me. And when you see them coming, do you see they are the harvest? Jesus is looking down the hill as the people are coming to him. They've heard about him, and they're wondering. They want more of him. They're going, maybe he's the one. And he says, when you look at them, when you look at them, all you see is impure. All you see is essentially a threat. You don't see the thirst. He's saying, they are the harvest all around you. And yet the whole time you just say, oh, maybe in four months. Maybe in four months. See, if Jesus is living water and the real root problem is that we are thirsty, then it's always harvest because there's always a solution. But if our problem is that everyone needs to just get their act together and they need to change those lifestyle things that they're bringing towards us, and those are political affiliation that they're bringing towards us. Listen, that's all sourced in a deep thirst. And if that's the issue, it's always just going to be wartime and it's going nowhere. But Jesus said, and it's always going to be famine. But Jesus says what every human being wants. There is a time and a place to address those surface level realities. But first and foremost, do you look up and do you see a thirst? Because if you see the thirst, I'm living water and it's always harvest time. And so what happens is we say, oh, maybe in four months, maybe in four months when the society gets its act together, when in four months when everyone cools their jets, right? And it's not this political kind of back and forth. In four months when, when everybody gets sane again. In four months when everyone stops being so progressive or so conservative, whatever your bag is, when, whenever people get their act together on the surface, then it can be harvest time. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, if you can't see the harvest and all you can see is that threat and that annoyance, then the issue is because they are a threat to the very thing that probably gives you your identity and satisfaction. And that's the connection to what Jesus is saying. And when I realized this, when I was studying, man, guys, this, woo, this wrecked me. There's so many times where I'm just, I'm annoyed, I'm like, all oh, this again, or come on, like, and I'm just looking out, and I'm going, what, and at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying, the reason why it gets under your skin so much is because that, if I could just get him to agree with me on this, or just get him to accept this lifestyle approach, then either it would make my life easier, or that's the thing I'm really saying, repent and become this, because I actually truly deep down believe that's where living water flows. This is very poignant when you realize what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying that he's not just saying, you disciples, why would you look at people and think about them that way? What he's trying to get to him, he's like, I want, I want you to see how this is actually keeping mission and being a Christian, even sharing the gospel could actually, in the way you're doing it, could actually be something that's keeping you from actually seeing your true deep thirst. Because you're always up here fighting up here, trying to get people to agree with you up here. And he's saying the whole time that's how you're trying to satisfy yourself. It's a lot of complexity here. You don't counter radical lifestyle choices with conservative lifestyle choices or vice versa. You don't counter thirst. You, you, you counter thirst with living water. 
And then as those things, as, as there's living water, then the reality is that then you can start to talk about the surface level, like how this plays out and how we're to live our lives. It does flow to obedience, but you've got to know Jesus truly. Then you love him. And if you love him, then you're going to have obedience. If you try to follow the king and say kingdom ethic, but there is no love of the king and they've never experienced his grace, why would they ever follow him? And Jesus is saying, make sure you get to that thirst and you listen, you understand that thirst to address it so that then they can find satisfaction in me. And when that happens, then they'll follow me. But don't get it backwards. When you look up and you see the crowds, when you see your neighbors, when you see your friends, when you see your family members, when you see those far from Jesus, and you see the ways that, as Acts 17 says, they're reaching their way for God in their blindness, hoping this next thing, this next career move, this next move, this next relationship, this next hookup, this next meal, whatever it is, this next thing will be the thing that finally gives me that thing that's transcendent, that can only be found in God, and everyone is doing that around you. We should not just be railing and mad. We should actually be sad and sorrowful because we want them to know life. But Jesus is saying it's so hard when that thing that they're grabbing onto is actually like the opposite of what you actually find life in. This is both a plea from Jesus for his disciples and for those like the woman at the well who are far from him to realize their need, their thirst. When you look up and you see the crowds and you see those around you, do you see just some kind of a threat, just some kind of annoyance, or do you see thirst? We don't have really a solution to threat. We do have a solution to thirst in Jesus. So how do we lead both ourselves and those who are far from Jesus to living water? And uh, let's see what happens to the crowds. I know I'm going a little bit long. I apologize, but let me finish up here. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Imagine that. Jesus stays in your house for two days. Make you insecure about your cooking, wouldn't it? Uh, and many more believed because of his word. They believed because of his word. Jesus is with them. She brought them to Jesus, and they hear his word. And the woman said, it's no longer because of what, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's not just because she had an emotional experience. It's not just because she was able to, like, you know, some, some just kind of a, a, a sentimental, emotional testimony or whatnot, or a moment. They heard directly from And if we get to the source and we experience that living water, then when those through us, like fresh water, and what's going to happen when we're engaging with them is we're going to go, how can I, I, I don't have all the answers to probably whatever you're doing. I, I can't answer all the philosophical questions. Everyone now is armed with like all their podcast stuff. You're like, well, da, 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 da. and you're like, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is the place where I found life. I've been searching just like you. I might find it in love just like you. I might find success just like you. I don't know. But probably your coworkers probably share some similar idols. And when you go to them and say, but here's what I found. When I gave myself to that again and again, it just didn't satisfy. And a career is a good thing. A marriage is a good thing. Relationships are a good thing. Sex is a good thing. All these things are good things, but then they become what you want it to be. So would you be willing to sit down with me and just like, you know, go through the Gospel of Mark or something and actually encounter Jesus? He's pretty intriguing. I think you'll find it interesting. And let God spend two days with Jesus, spend some time with Jesus, and let them encounter him and hear his word. 
and then also let the Spirit of God do the work that we can't do ourselves. Now, the question is, how do you get to that point? How to lead someone to leave living water? I hate doing how-tos, but anyways, it's helpful. Living uh, leads to living water, four steps. And this is a diagnostic that we can use with ourselves. How do I lead myself to living water? Not just lead someone else, but actually do a process in my own soul. And the first question is, the first step is to enter. Step into the world and listen. When I say listen, I mean don't go in ready to debate, but actually to listen, because here's the goal. The goal is to know what is it that actually drives their life? What's their operating system? What do they believe is true? What do they believe is actually valuable? What's, what's good? What's beautiful? Like, find out what those things are. Because one, a lot of times you'll find common ground that you can build on. But also, when you're talking to them, you've got to find out what deep down is the thing that's actually driving their life. Now, Jesus didn't have to demonstrate asking questions of the woman because he knew her, but he did draw out of her those realities. And then he used, this is why you see Jesus using very unique language in this passage that he doesn't in other passages because he was speaking, putting it in terms that she understood because he understood her experience and he listened to it. And he said, yep, you want the gift of God? Actually, let me rearrange that so you understand what the true gift of God is. So listen to what our enter in into the world and listen. And then next, explore, search for elements of grace and the idols attached to them. This is the question is, what do they really want? Like, what do they really want? Enter into their world and find out, uh, searching, yeah, I, I hit the, sorry, I skipped my spot there. Searching for elements of grace and the idols that are attached to them. So, okay, you say, like, at the end of the day, it's ultimately love is true. But when you're going and you're searching for love, are you finding it? Like, what is the thing that you really want? Like, at the end of the day, okay, somebody is, you're working with a coworker, and they're like, they're just driven, 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 driven. As you talk to them, you go, actually, you discover step one. You enter in, you find out that actually what drives them is the belief that if they don't produce, they don't really have a worthwhile existence. And that drives the core of their being. That's the core of what they believe. Well, guess what? Then when you're able to come in, it's like, what do you really want? What you really want is actually for someone to actually love you for you, not for what you produce. I'm telling you guys, when you can actually listen to someone, you can identify those things, and you can articulate them to them in ways they've never even realized, it opens up unbelievable doors. And then after you're able to articulate that, then explore. Search for elements of grace in the idols that are, sorry, that was the first, expose. Showing, my thing is too small. Showing up the idols as destructive frauds. So then you can essentially ask them, well, how's it working for you? How's it working for you to find your identity in your work when they just fired you? When you kept working and working and investing and investing and they just said, oh, next up. Did it give you that sense of affirmation? a sense of meaning. See, when we're in people's lives enough to really know what's going on, and we're one of the only people in the world that they actually can share these things with, it opens up massive doors. And yes, you're going to be able to, like Jesus, then ask him the questions like, go get your husband. Yeah, because you've been going from husband to husband to husband, because that's actually what's going on in your world. In other words, you're, what you've been trusting in is failing you. And you can poke them right in the idols, right, when that happens. And you can draw it out, and they'll let you. Because at that point, they're going to realize you actually understand what's really going on. So then you, ex you expose and then last evangelize. This is all evangelism, but I need a fourth E. So showing off the gospel of Jesus Christ as fulfillment of longing. So the whole time they've been saying, it's like, how is that working for you? It's not working. How about Jesus? And I know that sounds a little bit corny, but, you know, I, I was sharing last Thursday at Salt. We, we, um, I, I addressed the idea of love is love. And... 
I, I shared about a story of somebody recently interacting with who I'm, I deeply love who came out recently, and we were up till three in the morning talking and he was sharing, listening, sharing his experience. And, and, and one of the things that I, I told the students like it came to was I just told them as we talked and listened and exposed and went through a lot of these things where I just said, listen, I, at the end of the day, it was love. You want love, and I, I'm not going to pretend I have the market on love cornered. I'm not some guru. But at the same time, here's what I found. I, I, I know I want love for you, and I want love. And I've spent my entire life like going from thing to thing to thing, trying to find it, and I found again and again it wasn't enough. And here's the thing. It may sound corny, but what I found is ultimately the only place I found that love where it satisfied and transformed my understanding of all other love was in Jesus. And, and that, that may sound weird to you, but, and I'm not saying that every day now is just like a walk around like with, you know, on cloud nine and all my doubts are gone and all that, but here's the thing, it's changed, it's anchored everything, fundamentally changed everything. Would you be, would you be interested in just like exploring, kind of going on that journey with me? following Jesus a little bit, and then that's when, would you want to sit down, gospel, Mark, whatnot, sit down, follow Jesus, spend the two days with him, let him speak, let his spirit do work. Jesus gives us, in closing, I know right now for, in our workplaces, this is difficult, in school, this is difficult, and I'm right here, I am defining, like I'm talking somebody who's far from Jesus, who's using completely different categories, completely different worldview. This is a way to build that bridge and lead them. And also while you're doing it, you're going to realize, do I really go to Jesus for living water? What's really at the root of my operating system? What's really the thing that I've been trusting in? What's really letting me down? I know Jesus won't. Jesus said, after the, white, the fields are white for the harvest, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. What's he saying there? He's saying God has already sowed. Your job is just to reap. God has already gone before us. God has gone before us in a city of a hundred and some thousand people. He's gone before us. He's gone before us in giving, creating the, in them a thirst for him. He's gone before us to the cross and making a way for them. He's gone before us in a resurrection, securing new life and living water for them. He's gone before us in ascending to the throne, and the Spirit is now at work. And listen, he has gone before us into the city, into our neighborhoods, into the classrooms, into the workplaces, wherever we go. He's gone before us, and he's already at work, and he's inviting us to learn his will. He's inviting us to join in the work of seeing all things made new through Jesus Christ. We get a front row seat to see that. And right now, maybe not right now, it's a little late, but right now there are many elect who are waking up all around this city, around us right now, and they're thirsty. They're thirsty. Right now, God has many people in this city that he wants to call to himself. He has many future Pauls and future pastors and future passionate followers of Jesus who are waking up in their beds right now. Waking up who knows where right now. And they're waking up with this thirst, and that's the thing that we know is there. And they're waking up, and their soul is crying out, going, how will this ever be satisfied? Because again, it wasn't. And now I've got to pretend it didn't happen. i got to bury it. i got to numb it. And what Jesus is saying is, will you lift up your eyes when you walk out of this place, and will you see, not the annoyances, not the threats, but will you see that thirst that they have in their soul? And reap what you could never sow.
to speak and see new life happen, to see people actually satisfied. And then we rejoice with God in fresh ways because we get to see him work in a completely different way. And there's nothing in the modern world that will actually address your doubts more than seeing Jesus work in another person that way. So ask God, who do you need to see with harvest eyes? Who do you need to look up and see? God, who? My friends, my coworkers, who am I not seeing with harvest eyes? Who am I just seeing as a threat versus seeing their thirst? Listen, guys, they, they may not believe in him, but they do miss him. They do thirst. They just don't know it's for him. He's invited you to be able to bring that invitation. He goes before you so you can say to them, believe in him, know him, and thirst no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this, this text is convicting for me. Lord, just how often I, I don't see others and the thirst that's there. And Jesus, I just don't see them with the eyes you have. And so, Jesus, would you just, Spirit, would you make all of us this week, would you give us those harvest eyes to look up and see that when you say the harvest is plentiful, that we would look up and we would see that's people, that's souls that are all around us, that are digging cisterns, that are feeling their way blindly towards you. And Lord, we wouldn't just get mad and we wouldn't just rail. We wouldn't just, just fight about that stuff. But Lord, we would be saddened. We'd be sorrowful. But Lord, also a joy in knowing that there actually is a solution to what they're longing for. There actually is good news. Lord, would you do that first in our own souls and reveal these things and reveal idols in our souls? And Lord, then would we be people of freedom who, Lord, proclaim Jesus, who just living water courses into our souls and through our souls. And Lord, may we be a refreshing presence, a renewing presence throughout this city. Lord, we ask for dramatic change. We ask for living water to break out like an ocean over this city. We ask for living water to break out on campus. We ask for living water to flow into our neighborhoods, through our homes. We ask for living water to flow into our schools. We ask living water, that living water would flow into our workplaces. We ask that living water would flow throughout this city and that it would cover this city as your glory covers the earth. Lord, would you do that work in our midst, but Lord, would you start at home by helping us to know that our thirst is only found in you and to take hold of living water and drink deeply of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.